So I want to uh, start off by reading uh, the first uh, part of this chapter that Mark Clark writes here. How often have we turned on the television and heard the host say, Tonight we will be talking about faith versus science. Our first guest is a former University of Oxford professor, evolutionary biologist, and best-selling author. He believes that science, not faith, holds the answers to all questions. On the other side of the aisle, we have Joe Smith, who will speak for the, the legitimacy of faith and Christianity. Joe homeschools his kids, thinks Oprah is the Antichrist, and lives in a swamp. Um, and, and so this is, this is kind of what he, he's getting at, is that you, you see something like this play out on TV or social media or university campuses often across the Western world. And so Joe uh, Smith and the Harvard professor kind of represent the two uh, sides or the widely embraced pictures of this faith and science debate. And so Christianity and, and faith in general, it's often seen as something that is naive, simplistic, and incompatible with human reason. And many people think of faith um, as something that speaks to just kind of a, a narrow realm of your life, whereas science is able to speak to every sphere of life, all aspects of life. Many people will think science is seen or as being based on truth and evidence, while faith is seen as being based on wishful thinking and, and legend. Science is viewed as a search for objective evidence that leads humanity forward, while faith is viewed as looking backwards to ancient teachings, out-of-date holy books, and irrational conclusions in the face of overwhelming evidence otherwise. And so that's just kind of, again, set the, set the stage for tonight. So just take a few uh, minutes and discuss this question. A popular view in our culture states, science is based on truth and evidence, while faith is based on hopeful thinking and legend. Have you found your faith, uh, sorry, have you found faith and science support, suppress, or oppose one another? Okay, so um, we've got a lot to try and work through tonight because this is a big topic, so I'm going to try and balance the amount of discussion time and uh, uh, teaching time as best I can. Um, But what I'm hoping we're going to see at the end of tonight is that you don't have to abandon your mind to be a Christian. Um, that you can, you can be a Christian and still um, have reason. I hope we'll see that fact-based science isn't perpetually at war with faith-based religion, that, that we'll actually see that Christianity is the most rational and reasonable worldview. And so there's, there's kind of a myth um, that exists that uh, faith and science are, are always at, at war with one another, clashing. And so it's, it's kind of created by a culture that thinks in the extremes of um, either or and not both and. And that's where you usually find the truth is, is kind of in that area of both and. And so faith and science, they can work together rather than um, the either or. You're either with science or you're with faith that we're often presented with. And so faith and science, they're not two mutually exclusive things. And so the either or um, idea or myth, it's kind of taught by one of the most pervasive and powerful structures um, that we have in our culture. And that's the, the idea of secular, uh, secularism. And so secularism um, is indifference to or rejection or exclusion of religion and religious considerations. Secularism, uh, my screen just keeps cutting out on me. Secularism seeks to interpret life on principles taken solely from the material 
world without considering spiritual things. It teaches that because we cannot test religious ideas such as God's existence or spiritual realities, such ideas should be marginalized from public life and discourse. And so um, most secularists believe that religious beliefs have been categorically proven false by modern developments in science and technology, and they can now be dismissed. And so um, if, if, if you hear somebody say, you know what, uh, science has proven that God doesn't exist, that's kind of a a secular uh, mindset or expression. Now, um, secularism, it's kind of held sway in Western culture since its rise during the Enlightenment, which was the the 1600s. And most um, seculars, you'll, you'll see that their most modern form is represented by guys like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. I believe Christopher Hitchens passed away a few years actually ago, actually. But they argue that science and naturalistic evolution have provided enough evidence to deduce, deduce atheistic conclusions to all our foundational questions. And so last week we talked about those foundational questions, the, the things that our worldview is made up. And so those questions of origins and meaning, morality, and destiny. And so they believe... Um, that if you don't submit yourself to a purely uh, naturalistic outlook, um, you're primitive, you're actually irrational. And so here's what uh, some of the guys have said. So this is Richard Dawkins. He said, Faith is like a mental illness, a great cop-out, the excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Sam Harris is is a little uh, meaner, we could say. Uh, We have names for people who have many beliefs for which there is no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, delusional, or psychotic. And so you'll, you'll see the contrast there in those things, that science is kind of presented about being uh, thinking, evidence, rational justification, while Christianity or just faith in general is seen as um, evading the evidence or clinging to what's not rational or non-rationality. Um, and so here's, here's another discussion question. How has this so-called contrast affected the way you share your faith or interacted with people who don't share the same beliefs that you do. And so again, this, this kind of, you, you see this idea that, uh, that science is, is rational, faith is irrational, and this, this is kind of put on us. And so sometimes we're living with this stereotype that's been put on us. How does that affect the way that you interact with people who don't share the same worldview? So the myth, the myth kind of says that uh, science is relevant and, and faith is irrelevant. It's um, an outdated view. But, but here's the thing, and I, I don't want to say science, because there's so many different um, people along the line or who are in science at different points. But here's the thing. What if secularism and naturalism are the views that are actually outdated and not a faith view? And so what if faith and reason are not opposed to each other at all, but actually belong together in a way that, that takes the evidence that science discovers and provides and makes sense of it. And, and, and it gives explanations that are better than even atheistic explanations for that evidence. Now, there are many in academia from the disciplines of science, philosophy, and the like who, who actually say you can be led towards the Christian faith through reason, by the study of science, history, and philosophy, and you can actually be led away from that, that modern, secular, atheistic worldview. And so they, 
they would say the, many of these people within the sciences are saying that uh, Christianity is actually a more um, rational worldview than, than a secular or atheistic one. And, and we don't hear that story too often in our culture these days. Now, a few years ago, there was uh, an atheist named Quentin Smith and he uh, criticized the way that uh, Christians were taking over philosophy departments in universities across America. And so he was warning his colleagues, he's saying that the field of philosophy is being desecularized. And so he's saying faith is finding its way back into uh, this science. And so the movement of Christians taking over philosophy departments became uh, or came largely about because of the work of a guy named Alvin Platinga. Now, Platinga, he's a theist, which fancy word for somebody who believes in God, and he's also a Christian, and he's considered by many people to be the greatest living philosopher today. Now, Platinga, he argued for the, or argues, I should say, for the existence of God at such a high and convincing level that Quentin Smith, this atheist, says this. He says, in philosophy, it became almost overnight academically respectable to be or to argue for theism. He's not just saying acceptable, but actually respectable to argue for theism. And so what's kind of interesting is that there's an increasing number of philosophers who believe in God. And again, this is kind of uh, the exact opposite of what we're being led uh, to believe. Now, philosopher David Bentley Hart, he said this, I do not regard true philosophical atheism as an intellectually valid or even cogent position. In fact, I see it as a fundamentally irrational view of reality, which can be sustained only by a tragic absence of, absence of curiosity or a fervently resolute will to believe the absurd. And he concludes that atheism must be regarded as a superstition. And so he, this is a philosopher, he's saying actually atheism are, are the ones who are, or atheists are the ones who are more superstitious than those who have faith. Um, and so he, he's saying that theism, again, more rational than atheism. Now, many people will say if you have faith, you have um, blind belief. You're, you're just believing in something that the evidence doesn't support. And, and so faith is, is belief in nothing that has um, proof or evidence. Um, they say faith is something that religious people have versus the rest of humanity who believe um, in the facts and the evidence and live their lives based off of what is reasonable and true. Now, kind of, is this, is this thing that we're being told is happening true? Is it true that, um, that the rest of humanity, those who reject religion or faith, um, don't have any faith, that they're living the more rational and realistic worldview? And so what you actually see is this isn't true at all. Um, every person, even the most devout atheist, has a faith position. Everyone believes in something, and, and they make assumptions about what they believe, even though these things can't be proven through science. And so a person um, might say to you, I don't believe in God. I follow where science and history leads us. I, I look at everything objectively without a predetermined agenda. I don't have faith in anything. I'm just, I take the evidence as it is presented. But that person, again, they're not being honest with themselves because we talked about this last week. Every person 
has a worldview. And that worldview are lenses that you see the world through and you interpret that information and it helps you make sense of what you're, um, what you're hearing, what you're reading, what you're taking in. But it also kind of uh, makes you lean towards a way that you're going to interpret that evidence. And so everything we believe is filtered again through our worldview and you've adopted your worldview through where and when you were born, your family, your education, the, the books, the media that you read. And so here's the thing, again, we're frequently unaware of these presuppositions that are built into our lives and the way we look at things. But all of them, to a certain degree, these presuppositions that we have are faith-based conclusions rather than beliefs that are adopted through experimental proof. And so here's, here's kind of an example. There was a nurse, a Christian nurse, who was working in a hospital. And in this hospital, uh, kind of everybody said, this is going to be a secular workplace. There's no room for faith in, in caring for patient, patients. We're not going to allow faith to kind of play a role there. And so one night, the medical team was discussing a patient who was on life support. And they're trying to decide what they're going to do uh, with this patient. Uh, patient debating whether or not to take the guy off of life support and so one doctor said to the rest of the team well at least we know if we take him off life support he won't be suffering anymore and the team all kind of nodded in agreement yeah he he won't be suffering if if we if we uh, take him off and so um this is where the nurse started to wonder because how did the doctor know this How does the doctor know that once they take him off life support, he's not going to be suffering anymore once he was dead? Because that that in and of itself is kind of a theoretical statement about things that can't be tested, about what the afterlife is like. And so the, the group of doctors, even though they insisted that this be a secular workplace, were speaking out of a faith position for which they had no proof. How do you, again, how do you know that that the afterlife has less suffering or no suffering than the suffering that person was experiencing then uh, in that hospital. Now, they believed wholeheartedly that the person would be suffering less, but based off of what evidence? And it's a, it's a faith position. And so, again, even atheists or those who insist on secularist worldviews have a faith position that they operate or work out of. And so, everyone has faith to some degree, and even again, atheists, they have faith that there's no God. They have faith that there's no spiritual realities. Um, But again, their faith is in things that can't be tested or proven. Now, I want you to to discuss this for a few minutes. What, What do you think about this idea that everyone has a faith position? Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with this uh, statement and what implications uh, it's not on there but what implications does this have for the conversations we're going to have with people who who might not share our worldview um so a popular myth of our time says that the church uh has been against science um from the from the beginning and we're often pictured as um hearing the evidence and then ignoring the evidence and saying the exact opposite of what the evidence actually says. And so um, we, have to, we have to admit it. There have been some Christians 
who have been against science. Uh, let's not, like, we're not going to try and hide that. There have been uh, Christians who've preached against it, um, who said the exact opposite of what the facts said. And so we won't try and hide that. But at the same time, the reality is the church itself has never been an enemy of science. And any disagreements um, that have existed between the two, between church and science, um, have largely been exaggerated. And so, uh, Sometimes atheists will like to speak about the, the persecution uh, they've, uh, they've experienced or scientists have experienced. And so you'll hear stories of um, people being burned at the stake for scientific theories that oust God. They'll talk about how uh, Galileo, Copernicus, Giordano, Bruno um, were tortured for holding their heliocentric views that that the earth and the planets revolved around the sun and not everything revolving around the earth and that the church rejected this and, and persecuted them for that. Now, these are kind of exciting stories. They're interesting stories, but they're largely uh, untrue. Now, historians agree that the science versus religion story is a 19th century fabrication. And so what they're saying is the church did not persecute Copernicus or Bruno or Galileo for their scientific theories, although some people like to say that the church did. And so historian Thomas uh, Kuhn, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, he, he points out though, he says this, Bruno was not executed for Copernicanism, Copernicanism but for a series of theological heresies centering on his view of the Trinity. And so um, he, he was executed by the church, and that's not good, but it wasn't for science. It was for theological beliefs that, that the church disagreed on. And again, the church shouldn't be killing people because they disagree with them on something. But it wasn't over science, like people like to say. Um, it was about his beliefs as, in God. Um, as a practicing Catholic, Galileo was a friend of the church for most of his life. In 1616, he actually got to meet with the Pope several times. Um, Galileo, though, as time went on, he became more critical of the church and the church's views. And the church, it did persecute Galileo for a time, um, demanding that he recant some of his heliocentric views, but he was never charged with heresy. And um, when it says persecution... He wasn't placed in a dungeon. He wasn't tortured. Um, that's, that's popular mythology amongst, uh, amongst skeptics. What happened was he was placed under house arrest, and then he was released into the custody of the Archbishop of Siena, who housed him in his very own house for five months. And his house was a palace. So Galileo wasn't that hard up. Um, Galileo then returned to his villa in Florence, continuing his scientific work and even publishing um, some of his scientific theories before dying of natural causes in 1642. And so uh, the, the, the picture, or science likes to picture, sh- I should say, um, skeptics of faith like to picture Galileo as a, ma- a martyr of uh, the church or for science, but that's just not the case. Um, now, Thomas Liesel, he wrote that any persecution Galileo faced uh, was an anomaly, um, a, a momentary break in the otherwise harmonious relationship that existed between Christianity and science. And so there's no other example, and this has come from historians, there's no other example in history of the Catholic Church condemning a scientific 
theory. And so to say that the church or Christianity has always been against science is what we call revisionist history, a reinterpretation of the historical record. And so another example of uh, historical revisionism is when skeptics will say the medieval church um, believed that the Bible taught that the earth was flat and that um, the church just got upset and angry when science came along and proved that the world was actually uh, round or a a globe and and that the Bible was wrong. And so they're saying the church got upset by this, but that's not true because from the time of the ancient Greeks, everybody kind of knew that the world was round because when a ship would be sailing away into the distance, you would see the front of the ship disappear over the kind of the the curvature of the earth before you saw the mast of the ship disappear. They also knew from things um, like eclipses when the sun would pass or the earth would be between uh, the the sun and the moon and you would see the earth's um, shadow on the moon. They saw that it was round and so they knew from uh, many years before, before the medieval ages, that the earth was round. And so the apparent flat earth conflict is part of 19th century propaganda. Now when it comes to the faith and science conversation, we also have to realize um, that not all science is the same. Um, There's a huge difference, a big distinction between what we call operational science and origin science. And so operational science, it studies things that happen all the time, things that happen with regularity. And so when you go to a, a science fair, that's that's operational science. That's where they're they're taking things like um, volcanic eruptions, magnets, the weather, um, and, and they're they're taking and they're they're studying it because these things happen all the time. They can observe them in real time. But origin science that's about past singularities. Um, you you don't get to repeat those things. You don't get to experiment with them. You don't get to rip, um, test them in real time. And so think of forensic science or uh, origin science like forensic science, or a a CSI guy. I don't know if anybody still watches that show or not, or if it's even still on, to be honest. Um, But but the the CSI guy, he shows up on the scene of the crime. There's a dead body. And he goes and he looks at the evidence, and he puts together a theory of what happened, how this person was killed or died. You don't, like, he can't... um, replicate the murder. You probably shouldn't replicate the murder. Um, It wouldn't be good. And and so he's taking the evidence and he's going, okay, this is what I think happened based off of what the evidence suggests. And so again, origin science isn't isn't an experiment you test and repeat. You're working with a hypothesis about something that happened in the past but you're, again, not conducting real-time experiments. And so this is another thing where we're going, there's faith involved in many aspects of science. And so um, I want you to discuss this. Why is it significant that we realize there's a big difference between operational science and origin science? And why is this distinction uh, important when it comes to the faith and science conversation that, that we'll have with people? All right, so uh, you guys are having some some good discussions. I have this table's fact-checking me on what I say. It's good. Um, But yeah, there's a distinction, um, and it's important, because when it comes to um, origin science, again, you're just taking the evidence that's there, and origins even, we're talking about where did, how did creation come about? 
Um, and you're taking the evidence that there is there, and you've got to come to a conclusion about that. And so when you actually take the evidence that's there about the beginning of the world and, or creation, um, the evidence actually points towards God and not away from him. Now, many people, um, and I've never understood this, but they'll say, I don't believe in Christianity, I don't believe in God, I believe in evolution. And it's like, okay, but why does evolution prove that there is no God? How does evolution in any way whatsoever prove that there is no God? Because there's a lot of details, even if evolution is your worldview, nothing, okay, but there's a lot of details that you need to fill in. Um, and, And the problem is that a lot of them just go, I believe in evolution, I don't believe in God, but they've never taken the time to fill in the missing details in their worldview, why they've adopted such a framework or such a faith position. And it, it lacks a lot of, um, I shouldn't say lacks a lot of evidence, but there's a lot of gaps that need to be filled in if that you're going like, I don't believe in God, I just believe in evolution. It's just purely evolution. And so some of these things would be a first cause for creation. Okay. If everything evolved from uh, lower forms, where did those lower forms come from in the first place? Another one would be um, just kind of the complexity of the human body or other things. The, the human eye is a huge one that Darwin struggled with understanding. He's like, I don't really have a reason or a, and the ability to explain how the human eye works. Um, another one would be the problem of the Cambrian explosion, which is when most of the major groups of animals appeared in the fossil record in a relatively short time. And you, you see a huge diversity of forms appear in this short amount of time. Um, there's also missing links in the fossil record as well. And so um, what, what you're seeing is that few evolutionists are actually um, looking for these things anymore, and they've abandoned traditional Darwinism, and they've gone for something that's called uh, neo-Darwinianism, uh, and it's kind of marrying, uh, I forget the name, Magellan or something, some of his scientific things where he goes, you don't see the, uh, the creatures evolving as much as, as Darwin thought, but but they're trying to marry Darwinianism to this guy's worldview and come up with something. Now, um, Harvard paleontologists and atheist Stephen Jay Gold, he admitted, uh, I'm getting behind here, he admitted this. He said, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. And so he's admitting that a lot of this worldview has been built on a lot of guesses or inferences. In other words, they place faith in um, their assertions to be true, but it's based off of things they don't have the evidence for or to support. And so here's, here's what you find. Evolutionists will also argue um, that what presently exists in us, whether that's a physical trait, a psychological trait, or an emotional trait, is nothing more um, that what, than what was and continues to be useful for survival, not what is necessarily true. I'm going to say that again. Evolutionists will er, argue that what presently exists in us, whether a physical trait, a psychological trait, or emotional trait, is nothing more than what was and continues to be useful for survival, not what is necessarily true, because kind of Darwinianism is survival of the fittest. You, whatever it takes to survive 
you kind of do. And so they would say that, that faith or belief in God is an outdated invention that we came up with years and years ago to make ourselves feel better or to help us survive in some way. And that, that belief, that faith idea has carried over from the past, but they're going, we don't need it anymore because science has kind of proven God doesn't exist or God isn't necessary. And so essentially they, they, they're saying, um, you can't trust your rational faculties to tell you the truth about God because your rational faculties are only telling you what comforts you or what keeps you alive. And so I want you to discuss that. What is the problem when secularists or atheists say you can't trust your rational faculties to tell you the truth about God? When they say that whatever you, you, um, your physical traits, your, your psychological or emotional traits are only there to help you survive, but not necessarily to tell you what is true. What's the problem with that? So discuss that for a few minutes. All right, so I know this, uh, this question was kind of maybe a bit of a tricky one, and uh, like I, when I was, I tried to frame it in a way that didn't give away where we're going, but kind of hopefully we can kind of pick up where it's going. I think just walking around, I could hear bits and pieces of conversation. I think you're there. Now, this is, this is the challenge for uh, an evolutionist or a secularist or an atheist saying we've evolved from lesser forms, because if evolution is true, Everything, including our minds um, and the conclusions we come to using them, has to have a naturalistic explanation. So again, you think the way you do only because it helps you survive, not because it's true or good or right. And so if you can't trust your your brain, your belief-forming faculties, uh, to tell you the truth about God, is what the evolutionist or the atheist is saying. Just that, That's an outdated thing. If you can't trust that, then why would you trust your brain to tell you the truth about anything at all, including evolution or naturalism or secularism? And so uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, you guys know I love this guy. He put it this way. If certainty is merely a feeling in our own minds and not a genuine insight into realities beyond them, then we... Sorry, then we can have no knowledge. Unless human reasoning is valid, no science can be true. If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. And hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. Um, philosopher Mitch Stokes, he said it this way, atheists have a reason to doubt whether their evolution would result in cognitive faculties that produce mostly true beliefs. And if so, then they have reason to withhold judgment on the reliability of their cognitive faculties. And this ignorance would, if atheists are consistent, spread to all their other beliefs, including atheism and evolution. Atheists who believe the standard evolutionary story must reserve judgment about whether any of their beliefs produced by these faculties are true. Believing in unguided evolution comes built in with its very own reason not to believe it. Um, So are we tracking with that? What he's saying is, if you hold... Well, actually, we're kind of going to get there. What... What he's saying, essentially, is if evolution is your worldview, 
you have no reason to trust your worldview. Um, Charles Darwin, he said it. Uh, he said it this way. Sorry, I didn't keep up with um, didn't keep up with the slides very good. I apologize. But Charles Darwin, he said this: Within me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. And so here you have the founder of um, Darwinianism or evolution going, I don't, this could, this could all be junk. I don't, I can't trust it. Um, and so essentially what he's saying is if what I'm saying is true, I can't trust that it's true. Like how, if what I'm saying is true, I can't trust that it's true. Like, is that a comforting worldview? Do you want to kind of live that one out? And this is why a lot of people, when they follow that atheistic, secularistic worldview to its end, it doesn't end well for them. It, it just doesn't. Um, and so, what he, again, if he's right about this, he shouldn't really trust that he's right because it's just his brain telling him what he needs to survive another day. Now, a generation ago, um, people believed that the, the deeper science dug into the world through cosmology, biology, and other disciplines, the more secularized or atheistic our society would become. And so, in other words, the more educated we became, the less likely we would be to believe in God or religions. And we talked about this last week, but it's actually kind of the, the exact opposite. And there's actually a growing trend towards belief in God in academia. As science um, researches more deeply into the workings of the universe, people have discovered rational, logical reasons to believe in the existence of God. Now, Alan Rex Sandage, um, he's, he's said to be the greatest observational cosmologist of all time. Um, he said this, It is my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. And so I want you to discuss that quote. I think it's on your sheets as well. But to what extent do you agree with this quote? And why can't the study of the physical universe alone answer metaphysical questions? And if you're going, what does metaphysical mean? Um, that studies what can't be reached through objective studies of material reality. It's, it's, it studies those things that just aren't material um, or you can't study them because they're not material. You can't put them to a test. And so just discuss those questions for a few minutes. All right, so theologian Leslie Newbigin, he points out that statistically, the correlation between academic life and irreligion is much higher in the social sciences and the humanities than it is among the natural sciences. And so natural science are physics, chemistry, and biology. He says atomic physicists are much more likely to believe in God than sociologists. Um, and so what he's saying is that those people who work in the operational sciences, who work with things that you can experiment, that you can test over and over again, that you can observe um, in real time, he says they're more likely to believe in God than those who work with origin science, those things that you can't test, those things that you can't re replicate, those things that you can't really observe in real time. Um, and, and so um, a 2009 Pew Research Center survey of scientists who are members of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, that's quite the name, um, they found that 51% of scientists today believe in some God or some form of higher power, and 33% of those believe in a personal uh, God. 
Um, and so again, these aren't numbers that we're, we're used to necessarily hearing or you don't hear this too, too often. Um, and so there's nothing in science or there's nothing that science has, has proven to say that there is no God. There's just no definite evidence out there in any way whatsoever, no matter what your friend says, well, science has proven that there is no God. Like, they're wrong. <laughs> like, there's just no evidence. Um, now, science actually points towards God. Um, when you find the evidence, and this is what scientists are doing, they're going, who did this? Um, and so if you go to the Grand Canyon, you look at that and, and you go, okay, this, this happened naturally over time. Um, the, the river kind of wound its way through there, whatever the scientists are saying. But the, you go, okay, yeah, that, that happened just naturally. But you go to Mount Rushmore and you look at that and you go, okay, who did this? Some, someone with intelligence did this. Um, somebody who had skill did this. And, and you don't go, yeah, the, the, the wind and the, and the rain, they just worked together and they sculpted that guy's face perfectly. Oh, there's four of them. That's remarkable. Like, you, you just don't, you don't do that. You go, no, there was intelligence. There, there's a designer here. And so detail like that doesn't happen randomly. And it's the same that scientists are kind of finding with the universe. That the chances of, of, of all of this happening and life being able to be sustained on earth like it is, they're saying the math, it, it, they say it's, it's, it's pretty much impossible. In fact, you can just say it's impossible that this would happen randomly without uh, intention. Okay, so what are um, your options if you don't want to be a theist? What are your options if you don't want to um, believe in God, but you look at the physical universe and you go, okay, there's obviously design um, and, and somebody created this with purpose. And, and as crazy as it sounds, um, some secularists and atheists are starting to say things like aliens. Um, and they're going, aliens did it. Aliens came and they created um, the earth and, and they're the reason we're here and everything is so good and perfectly tuned for life. And I mean, okay, sure, but, but what was the first cause for the aliens? Where did the aliens come from? And you're back to square one. You need a first cause and they don't have it. And so the truth is uh, science has limits and science can't explain everything. Again, Stephen Jay Gold, um, he's an atheist, uh, an evolutionary biologist, a paleontologist, and a historian of science, and um, just a lot of uh, recognition and, and, and just like highly esteemed in his field. But he said this, he, he said, um, sorry, I'm skipping too far ahead, nature just is, and we cannot use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magisterium of religion. To say it for my colleagues and for the umpteenth millionth time, a little bit of exaggeration there, but science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adju adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. And so what he's saying, and he's admitting, and this is an atheist, he's going, science can't prove or disprove God. It only gives us evidence to study. It doesn't tell us why uh, about creation. And so um, Gold, he, he argues um, 
that you can't use physics to prove that a metaphysical being doesn't exist. But what, he's, what science is kind of finding is that the evidence is, is pointing towards the fact that he, he does exist, or there is a God. And so again, contrary to the, the story that we're hearing, that faith and science are enemies of one another. Now, Oxford uh, professor Alistair McGrath, he said this, the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. One of the last remaining bastions of atheism, which survives only at the popular level, namely the myth that an atheistic fact-based science is permanently at war with a faith-based religion. And so, um, Christianity and faith, not at war with science. And historians actually um, are, are saying that what we call modern science actually was conceived and born and flourished in um, the matrix of Christian theism itself. And so the reason this is possible is because Christian theology presents a world with distinct form, complexity, and design. Christianity kind of challenges us to experiment with what we see, believing that there's order, there's uniformity, there's design uh, to the universe. And so what, what you'll see is no other worldview or philosophy or religion of the ancient world um, offered the unique perspective that Christianity did. And so this is why uh, modern science really didn't emerge until after Christianity came about. And so the foundational philosophical thinking in many cultures, that just inhibited progress towards a scientific outlook. And so here's an example. Animism, uh, it deifies everything. It says there's a God in that tree, there's a God in that bush, there's a God in that rock, there's a God in that river. And they would say, you know what, we can't do science or investigate these things and as why, why they happen because you can't put a God to, um, or you can't, you can't test a, a God. You can't put a God to an objective analysis. Buddhism, it says that the universe itself is an illusion. There's no point then in doing any scientific study because all your conclusions are going to be illusions as well. Um, nothing physical is real, so why bother doing any experiments? Why, why bother with science? Uh, polytheistic religions where there's many different gods, they would say um, uh, that everything that happens is the action of a god. So there's not really any point in doing investigation or finding out why they do the things. Oh, okay, why is, that, why is there bubbles coming up from the ocean? I don't know, Poseidon's angry today. He's just stirring up the waters. He's, he's in a bad mood. Why, why is there thunder and lightning? Zeus is angry. He's, he's, he's just getting mad. As, like, there's no point in studying because the gods just are having feelings. Uh, and so it's only Christianity that kind of provided that. Um, and so Christianity, it provides what was necessary for scientific inquiry to come about. And we're going to work through these quickly, but uh, Kenneth Richard Samples, he cites 10 variables why uh, Christianity paved the way for science. The physical universe is a distinct objective reality. Secondly, the laws of nature exhibit order, patterns, and regularity. Third, the laws of nature are uniform throughout the physical universe. Fourth, the physical universe is intelligible. We can understand it. We can make sense of it. Fifth, the world is good, valuable, and worthy of careful study. Sixth, because the world is not divine and therefore not a proper object of worship, it can be an object of rational study. 
uh, seven, human beings possess the ability to discuss the un- or discover the universe's intelligibility. Eight, the frequent or the free agency of the Creator makes the empirical method necessary. Nine, God encourages, even propels science through His imperative to humans to take dominion over the earth, to rule over it. And ten, the intellectual virtues essential to carrying out the scientific enterprise are part of God's moral law. And so again, the the popular picture of Christians being scared of science and deep thinking, that's just never been true. And universities actually came out of uh, the Christian worldview. And so you've got universities like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Brown, all began as Christian institutions. Now, Many of them have kind of wandered away from their origins, but they began as Christian um, institutions. Now, detailed scientific and literary analysis has not only been an emphasis of Christianity since its beginning, but in many ways, Christianity is what gave birth to science and experiments and things like that. So here's the question. What if science actually points humanity to God instead of disproving his existence? Now we're going to break out some Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul writes, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And so what that verse is essentially saying is God is showing us through his creation, I'm here, I exist. Um, like I, It's almost... You, you can't deny, as scientists have found, when you study, that there must be some sort of creator. And so the Bible teaches that science is not the enemy of faith, but simply one of the means by which we look into nature and learn about God. Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the works or work of his hands. And so God is constantly preaching at us through everything he's made, through the stars, through the planets, through trees, through animals, through microorganisms. We can keep going. But he's constantly saying, look at the complexity that there is in all of this and how it yet it all works together. It complements one another. Here I am. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. And so what Paul is kind of getting at in Romans chapter 1 is that the issue that is there is not a lack of evidence, but the suppression of evidence. The problem is not that the evidence isn't there, but it's that we choose or humanity often chooses to overlook the evidence, the signposts that point to God and they want to believe something else. And we can kind of get into that another time, why we want to believe something else other than God. I think it's because we want to be our own gods. We'll leave it there. But if that describes where kind of you're at, I'm hoping, again, that, that you're willing to consider that through science and through creation, God is saying, here I am, I want to know you. And behind all of the scientific study that we can do, there's a God who, who created it, the God who, who loves you, There's a God who wants to know you in a personal way. 